But in the future, we will have systems that can solve most of the biggest problems society faces. So we can, I think, lift the entire world out of poverty. We can cure with time every disease. We can address climate change. We can provide everyone on earth a great education. Um, we can make everybody way more productive. Welcome back to Wise on Air, the show where we talk to the world's leading minds on the future of education. My name is Basim and I'm the producer of the show. WISE is the global education initiative of Qatar Foundation. AI has been a recurring topic this season, but a few weeks ago we had a rare chance to hear from a leading developer of ChatGPT, one of the most popular AI tools today. His name is Sam Altman and he's the CEO of OpenAI, the organization behind ChatGPT and other tools like DALI. Sam Altman was invited to speak at Qatar Foundation's Education City Speaker Series and many from the Qatar Foundation community were eager to attend his talk. Before the event, a poll was shared with the audience, asking them how concerned they are about the impact of AI on our world. The results were interesting. Only 18% said not at all, 30% said a little, and a whopping 51% said very concerned. This seems to reflect a global sentiment. Another recent survey by the Pew Research Center found that while most US citizens knew about ChatGPT, only 14% have ever used it. How would the results compare globally? We were lucky to have WISE director Elias Valfoul lead the discussion with Sam Altman and hear his perspective on how we should adapt to this technology and his predictions on how this world will change as these tools become more widespread. This recording is courtesy of the Education City Speaker Series, a Qatar Foundation platform for open knowledge and discussion that invites various speakers from around the world to share key insights about our world. You can find more of their conversations through the link in the description. Now let's join WISE director and frequent host of WISE on Air, Elias Fulfoul, to kick off the conversation. So Sam, I want to start with the first question. Tell us more about OpenAI, about ChatGPT as a platform, but I want to focus on the future. What's the future hold for the platform and for the company? So I think there are two... First of all, this is... Uh, a great honor to be here. I'm really happy Not too this, bad. this worked out. 48 minutes. Beautiful. Um, I think there's two major incredible things that are happening in the field of AI right now. Uh, one is that we have an algorithm that can really truly learn. It's not a trick. Um, it's, not, you know, it's actually able to ingest data and learn and come up with new ideas. And the second is it gets predictably better with scale. And when you combine those two things together and you talk about the future, it's hard to predict exactly what's going to happen in what order. But a thing we can say with confidence is we are going to create, we open AI, but we the field and the whole world are going to create incredibly powerful and useful AI systems. Systems that will make GPT-4 look like this quaint little you know, toy that we kind of fondly remember. Um, but in the future, we will have systems that... I think can solve most of the biggest problems society faces. So we can, I think, lift the entire world out of poverty. We can cure with time every disease. We can address climate change. We can provide everyone on earth a great education. Um, we can make everybody way more productive, all knowledge workers at least, way more productive at their jobs. You're seeing this already. Programmers that use GPT-4 say they're two or three times more productive. You know, at some point that'll be 20 or 30 times. This will happen for other jobs too. But the, the positives that this technology can create for the world, I think, will be immense. And that the main point I would like to make here is that we are still at the very, very beginning. Um, this fact that the 
we can get predictably better with more scale on these systems uh, is, I think, one of the most remarkable facts in the world today. So everything happening now um, will look totally unimpressive in a few years. Um, this can affect all aspects of society. And in some sense, I think this is the kind of technology the world has been waiting for. You know, sci-fi for a long time has dreamed. You talk to a computer, you say in Arabic or English or whatever what you want, and the computer just does it. Right now it can be, explain this concept to me, write this code for me, but someday it can be, you know, discover a cure to this disease. Someday maybe even go build this building for me. Anything we can imagine, anything that, you know, is within the limits of human creativity, we'll be able to do. I want to focus on education because we are in Qatar Foundation and uh, this whole ecosystem is all about education. So there are a number of educators in the room. What advice do you have for us in terms of the likely impact of AI specifically on education? Uh, how do we take advantage of uh, the opportunities that it offers? But also we want to hear also how do we mitigate uh, or guard against uh, some of the risks? So on the upsides first, I think... I think everyone born today, everyone can have a better education than the best people had that are sitting in this room or are having sitting in this room. I think the future, when you really think about what this technology can deliver, you know, customized, personalized, one-on-one -on -one education alongside teachers as a tool to learn things, uh, you know, you can imagine very interactive new ways that we, we, we learn and that we read books or who knows what. Um, I think that's going to be amazing. One of, the, one of the use cases we've been most excited about with GPT-4 is how much people are doing already for education. Not even people who have built in the API, but also people who just use it inside of ChatGPT. Say, can you explain this to me? Can you explain that? You know, is my work here right? And I am a huge believer that if you give people better tools, if you give them better education, they will astonish you with what they can do with it on the upside. And I think this is going to be the greatest leap forward in technology for education we've ever seen. There are, there are going to be changes. There are going to be downsides. You know, take-home essays are probably forever changed. But we'll, we'll find better things to do. When, when the calculator came out, there were a lot of math teachers who used to say, this is the end of mathematical education. You know, if students have this, why even bother with math class? You know, there's no need to memorize times tables. Math is over. And it turns out we just raised the bar for what we're capable of and what we expect from people. And we said, okay, well, you have this extra brain space now. You don't have to memorize times tables. Uh, now you have to learn calculus. And if you learn calculus, it turns out there's a lot more you can do for the world. And I think the same thing will happen in education. So sure, ChatGPT can help you cheat on your homework. But if that's the way you're thinking about it, I think we're like missing the forest for the trees. And there will be new ways we teach people, new kinds of homework, because now we have a new tool. If, if I take a broader uh, perspective, and um, I mentioned to you earlier that we want to focus a little bit more on the global south, because we haven't heard you on, on this. But I just want to return to something you co-signed recently. You co-signed an open letter warning about the danger to humanity <laughs> from generative uh, AI that are analogous to those posed by pandemic and uh, nuclear war. I just wanna, want you to elaborate why this might be the case and just give us some, some, some concrete examples. So we've been talking about the upsides and the upsides are enormous, but this is a really powerful technology. This will be the most powerful technology 
humans have yet created. By a lot, I think. And with any super powerful tool, or almost any, along with the tremendous upsides, you have got to figure out how to mitigate the risks. And unfortunately, the more powerful a tool is, the bigger the risks are. And so, you know, we talked about the ability to cure every disease, but the same technology that's going to help us cure every disease would let a bad actor create new diseases that are probably worse than any we've ever seen. And unfortunately, you kind of can't have a technology that's capable of one and not the other. We will try our hardest to minimize that, but technology alone will not help us, will not totally help us with this. We will have to have global coordination commensurate with the level of risk. We've done it before. We've done it for nuclear technology. We've done it for biological risks in the past. We haven't done it many times, but there haven't been many technologies like this. And so we have started really trying to get people to take the magnitude of the risk here seriously to make sure that we get to enjoy the upsides and don't have a disaster along the way. Um, and a big part of this trip around the world, in addition to just learning from people and what they want from us and what they'd like us to build, which has been phenomenal, has been talking to people about the need for this sort of global regulatory framework of some sort. So we already have a lot of inequalities. So you're talking about big risks, obviously big ideas, big risks, but we already have this current inequality in the world. How do you, how do you balance uh, you know, this between the developed and the developing uh, world when it comes to this, uh, to this technology? Are we gonna see? Are we really gonna see this technology bringing the gap, closing the gap, or or, or again? I, I believe that this can be the most equalizing force ever uh, in terms of global equality. Now, you can also imagine a world where it makes it much worse. But fundamentally, if we can drive the cost of intelligence down and down and down and make that widely accessible to the world, that's great for everyone, but that does much more to help poor people than rich people. Um, and I think this is like, this is the promise of technology. This is how technology has made already, we have a long way to go, but already made so much progress towards lifting the world out of poverty. Um, I, I think scientific discovery, technological advancement, those have been the key levers. You of course need institutions and societal infrastructure uh, in place as well. But this technology, I think, could do the most. And you're already seeing that with use of ChatGPT in the developing world. I want to deep dive a little bit more on this because I want to understand how do you test and evaluate some of your product or use your research or the process within uh, a contextualized uh, you know, place or localized place? And, and, and how do you work with the different cultures? This is something that is very important yeah. for for, you know, for our region and different region. We want to understand how do you, how do, you do this in practice? So, so we have evals, evaluations, um, you know, like tests that we give the model for different languages, different contexts. Um, and we work to pull in data from around the world. And we're starting now to think not only about language, but different culture, cultural values and different cultural history. So we'd love to work with you all um, to put that data into the next big training run that we do. Um, and... We have users all around the world. And so when we get to do trips like this and talk to people and say, hey, what's working well for you? What's not? You know, what, what, is, what are we totally wrong about in our you know, Bay Area bubble, which is a lot. Um, and we, wanna, we want that feedback. So I am not a believer in you can do all that over Zoom. You can do some. 
Um, but I love the opportunity to come sit with users and developers around the world and understand what else we need to do. But any, any partnerships we can have to get data and history and cultural values in, we're starting to experiment now with how we like, can use ChatGPT to talk to people around the world to figure out what they want and what they want the system to reflect. But we're up for it. This is good news because my, my next question, you just answered my next question because I wanted to ask you, do you have a precise uh, uh, collaboration with you know, countries or organizations or universities in the global south? But you just said you open, you're open for, for that. So how, how a partnership will work with, with OpenAI on this? We're, we're just starting to do these, but uh, so the good news is like it's all up for discussion. Yeah. We can do whatever. Um, data sets that reflect uh, you know, anything you all would like to see in the model is one way. Human feedback, where you say, hey, you know, actually this answer isn't quite right or this doesn't reflect how we think about it. And then this new set of projects that we've just launched to try to gather the value system and inputs from the world, that would be another way too. Excellent. So I have one last question and, and then we, uh, we, we engage the audience. Contrary to expert prediction, if you go back 10 years ago or even five years ago, you've, you've got a lot of uh, experts experts who were mentioning that, you know, we're, we're going to have more automated trucks. Or, and what we really see right now is, uh, is, is ex excellent cognitive tasks, potentially even you know, creative work. Have the expert got it wrong? Yeah, I think there's a great lesson here about expert predictions. Uh, if, you, if you rewound maybe five years ago even, uh, the, the consensus from all of the experts in the field was first, AI was going to automate robotics, physical tasks, truck drivers were in bad shape, factory drivers were going to be in bad shape after that. Then maybe way longer, um, we'd start to automate like basic cognitive labor. And then maybe even way longer after that, the really hard stuff like computer programming, maybe even mathematics, but that seems really difficult. And then maybe never because it was like magical and human we would automate creativity and we'd be able to like generate images, you know, generate art. With the op opposite and it's gone exactly the opposite direction. And I think there's a bunch of interesting takeaways from that, but one that I would encourage you all to remember is anytime you hear someone make predictions about the future in AI, which I'm doing right now, you should like discount it quite heavily. Um, the field has been quite difficult to predict. One of the big take, we started with robotics, by the way, and we gave up on it a few years in because it was hard for the wrong reasons. It was not hard because the machine learning was hard to figure out. It was hard because robots are awful. We just have not figured out how to make high-quality, dexterous robots. I'm optimistic we're finally starting to make progress towards that. You know, someday we can restart our robotics projects. But that's been really hard. And, you know, a lot of the human brain is dedicated to controlling the body. It's very, very difficult to do. And it's it's a huge amount of the processing power. The world of atoms has been hard, but the world of bits has been easier for us. And again, back to the thing that I started with, this idea of an algorithm that can learn and gets predictably better with more scale, we have that for the cognitive world. And we've been able to make, I think, pretty remarkable progress there. So we'll keep... And then creativity can tolerate errors in a way that, you know, rigorous scientific work can't. And so that was easier to start. Um, so anyway, it's been a lot of our learning. And you took the world by surprise. I want to move to the audience. 
I Great. think we, uh, we, the fun will begin. Okay. They, they're going to be tougher than me, I believe. Tough and questions are great. to start with our students from past. Uh, so we have, we have um, I'll, I'll, I'll take question number one uh, here, please. Hello, my name is Alguri Khani. I'm a student at PASS. My question is, as the CEO of OpenAI, what are the biggest challenges um, you face in advancing artificial intel intelligence and ensuring its responsible uh, deployment? So there's a number of challenges uh, that all come together and that we're continuing to try to figure out how to balance. One is just continuing to make research progress. There's a long history of companies that start off with great progress, become like a star, and then you know get unfocused or distracted and don't continue to make progress. We are only as good as our next piece of research and maintaining that as the company scales up, figuring out what are the steps, what are the pieces we have to discover between here and artificial general intelligence is uh, very challenging. That's like just a difficult thing to maintain. In terms of ensuring that we deploy these systems responsibly, um, that's, that's why we're here. Like our, our mission, we started because we were scared about what could go wrong with AI. Um, and we've developed a huge amount of technology to mitigate some of the harms. I think GPT-4 is the most aligned model yet deployed. But it's going to get harder with new models. We're going to need new alignment techniques. We're going to need to engage with an even broader set of people around the world to figure out how this can be used differently in different contexts, what the rules of the road should be, how much flexibility different countries, different people get to customize the systems for slightly different or very different ethical frameworks, and how we're just going to balance the extremely different opinions, desires, value systems of the world altogether. Uh, another thing that we have to balance is the rate of deployment. There are people in the field who think you know, deploying powerful systems is just really bad. It accelerates things. It makes other actors who may have nefarious purposes build systems. Um, society is not ready. It's too disruptive. It's going to cause economic shocks. So you shouldn't deploy at all. And you should build AGI in secret. And then when you're done, you push a button and it's out in the world. Um, there's other people who think you de should deploy everything right as soon as it's ready. And you should open source it and just, you know, let the world do what it's going to do. We are in the middle of that, but we're always a little bit wrong on the balance. I think it's very important to try to keep the rate of change in the world relatively constant, but that constant rate is still going to be pretty high, and it's a lot for the world to adapt to. But we, I very strongly believe that people, institutions, governments, society, the economy, the only way to get through this is to have time to adapt. And I think the conversation the world is having right now, um, it's important that it's happening right now. And five years from now, it would be too late. So we have to balance that too. Thank you. So uh, what I'll do is uh, I'll go to the, the, next, uh, the next row, please. And then, and then we'll try to get a question from each row. And, and then I'll, I'll come down the other way. But yeah, please. Trying to find a system. Hi. This is Neda Bahdad. I'm the Senior Program Development Officer at Qatar Reads and a huge advocate for ChatGPT. So thank you for this amazing question. Thank discussion. you. Um, I'm a firm believer in the theory by Simon Sinek, the golden circle, where there's a what and a how, and then the essence is the why. Um, and the why is 
purely the, the reason that drives you, which is, if you go back to the first moment where you had the idea of creating this, this is the main drive that will keep you going regardless of the challenges that you face. So what is your why? First of all, I totally agree with that. I'm a, I'm a huge, huge believer and always try to talk to people about that. Uh, my why is I think this will be the most important technological development that humanity has yet accomplished. And it can either be really great or really terrible. Um, and I can't think of anything more exciting and fulfilling to work on. And I can't imagine a greater team to do it with. Yeah, Morad Zenib from Qatar Computing Research Institute. So my, my question is more down to earth. Is, so being a researcher in computing, so, so we have been thinking a lot about LLMs and what we can do. So for example, so we see that Arabic content in, in LLM is quite uh, big. So should, should we go ahead and build our own LLM or let's just, we are going to build it in GPT-4 or GPT-4.5? And then I will cheat because there's another question. Uh, sorry, one question. And, and we, ha we, have, we, we, have to, we have to go to everyone. It's related to, it's related to uh, the question is that people in computing research have been taken aback by the, what's happening. So what should we do? I mean, uh, people in NLP or in other areas. So what else is, uh, is, I mean, what else is left to do research on? Thank you, sir. We want to make our next training run much, much better at Arabic. Uh, our GPT-4 is a, a big step forward from 3.5. But we're working, uh, hopefully we can work with some people here to ensure that we have the training data to make our next model really great at it. Doesn't mean you all shouldn't train your own models too, but we believe that being at the model forefront and the emergent prop capabilities there is important. And these models are pretty good at being multilingual. So um, that's something to expect from us for sure from the future model. There, I think people were taken aback because they, they missed the, like humans are terrible at intuiting exponential curves. And so you could look at the scaling laws. We published the scaling laws in 2020, but people still just didn't quite believe it or couldn't imagine what the jump forward would, would look like. But now I think we've squeezed the easy juice out of the scaling paradigm. We'll keep doing that. But from GPT-1 to GPT-4 was like 100 million X increase in effective compute. It's gonna be hard to do that again. Uh, and so I think we're now back in an area where algorithmic research really matters. Efficiency gains, super important yet again. Like that's how we're going to keep this rate of progress. Um, and also, I think there are new paradigms left to find. You know, how we, how we go from a system that can do what it's already been taught to go discover new ideas, go discover what comes next in physics or biology or whatever. We don't, we have some ideas, but we don't quite know how to do that. And I think that is probably the central idea between us and AGI. So research on that would be a great thing to do. Thank you. Uh, the next role, please. One more question from, uh, and, and can we do, can, can we give the mic to, to two or three questions in a row then we, we, uh, we, don't, we don't lose uh, time in between? Yeah, so you get a mic, you get a mic as well. Can, can you give a mic to the gentleman? Thank you. Hello, uh, thank you so much for uh, coming today. Really appreciate it. My name is Asad. I'm a student at Carnegie University, a business major. Uh, when I went to Y Combinator, um, like last January, I um, had a really cool info session about startups. Um, and I want to ask a question about um, becoming an entrepreneur. So you've had a really um, like an interesting entrepreneurial journey, uh, full of ups and downs, and uh, look, um, OpenAI, 
your crypto project. And uh, my question is, how do you stay on the lookout for new ideas, new challenges, and uh, you know, increase your capabilities or knowledge, knowledge to um, you know, innovate new ideas? So first of all, I think this is the greatest time to be an entrepreneur um, since the internet started at least. You know, the, the times when the really great companies get created are right at the beginning of these major technological shifts. And the whole industry has kind of been waiting around for one for like a while. You know, the iPhone was one, but I think the internet was bigger. And this is probably, I hope, going to be more like internet sized than iPhone sized. So I think it's a tremendously exciting time. Finding new ideas, I don't, it's hard to like put it in a short number of words, but I spend a lot of time with like, smart people and reading stuff and trying to brainstorm and just paying attention to like what new things are possible this year with new technologies at the intersection in particular of new technologies that weren't possible a few years ago. And so like when we started OpenAI, there was an observation that there had been one big change, which was deep learning was working, but there had been a lot of other smaller changes that were coming together that meant we could, you know, do it, do it right then. Um, another company, I'm involved with uh, called Helion that's doing nuclear fusion. We identified eight changes at the same time that were all coming together that made fusion possible in a way it hadn't been in the past. So I think looking at those intersections of new things that are possible and spending a lot of time with smart people is a good way to do it. So you only focus on very small problems. Next, please. Hi, Sam. I'm Mohammed, a startup guy trying to raise funds. Uh, as a white combinator president, I wanted to ask you that how was your MVP? What was your MVP? What was your pitch to the investors about OpenAI? For OpenAI? Okay. So before running OpenAI, I used to run this thing called Y Combinator, which like funds a lot of early stage startups. And we, are, we were all about, you have to have a, a minimal product quickly. You know, in weeks, you have to get a few users within like a couple weeks after that. And you have to like talk to them every day and move faster and faster. You can't make people sign up for a product. You certainly can't go do research for a long time. Um, and I drilled this into entrepreneurs' heads for like a decade. And OpenAI then did none of those things. So one takeaway you could say is that Y Combinator gives bad advice. Another you could say is like all startups are a little bit strange in some way. When we started OpenAI, uh, it took us four and a half years till we had our first product. We told people up front we had no idea what, a product, what product we might make, how or if we were ever going to make money, um, or if we even knew how to get the technology to work. But we thought that this was like a valuable technology if we could make it work. And so the whole thing was really like, maybe we can make AGI and we're going to go try, and that's super valuable if we do. Um, but yeah, I, it was a strange experience. It's not how these usually go. One more question from uh, uh, our students, and then I will move to the other side of the room. And uh, so we can take two questions and, and, and say them uh, consequently. Are you going to help me pick which one? Uh, you choose. <laughs> Hi, I'm Yvonne. Um, my question is about the server costs. We all know that uh, NVIDIA hit their one trillion market cap a few days back, right? So how do you plan to optimize the server costs, especially with this like, huge influx of users coming in? This is where capitalism will do its magic. So, <laughs> you know, like NVIDIA got an early start. They, the, most of the world slept on the AI revolution. 
they made great chips, but they also made a few other smart bets that have given them a lot of lock-in with the network and the Encuda. And it's been very difficult for people to break into that, but I think it's finally happening. Um, I think we're heading towards a world in the coming years where there will be real competition. There will be multiple uh, you know, good accelerators in the world, although I assume NVIDIA will stay the best. It's an incredible company. And what they're doing is amazing. But you know, when there's more demand, capitalism responds, and it'll get cheaper. One more question from our students. It's, can I say one more thing? It is eye-watering right now. Like the, the compute expenses and what that does to slow down innovation, given the kind of like mismatch in supply and demand is a huge problem. That's why Midjourney stopped the free trials. Totally. Yeah. But yeah, we're going to get this fixed. Uh, hello, my name is Mahi Sharma, and I hope to become an ambassador for India in very distant future. Awesome. Uh, my question is, uh, how do you think AI would affect diplomacy by the time some like students our age would become diplomats, and how would you address bias and the expectation of transparency and accountability? I am optimistic that these systems are going to be far less biased than humans. Um, we all have psychological stuff built up. Um, there was a paper a few weeks ago about giving GPT-4 an implicit bias test, and it was less biased than, than people. If you just take the raw-based model, that'll be quite biased um, because of the internet. But if you, if you do this RLHF step, I think we're going to find that we can have these models be forces to help us be more aware and reduce bias in the world. On accountability and transparency, I think we are making reasonably fast progress there. Um, we have a long way to go. It, it probably won't be that you get to like understand what every neuron in one of these networks is doing for each query. But if you can get the model to like explain to you in natural language, here's why I made this decision, here were the key factors, here's why I might have gotten it wrong, I think that's kind of going to be as good as we can do with, with humans anyway. And if those are small enough steps we can verify each one, I think that'll help with the accountability and, and transparency. On how it'll impact diplomacy, um, I don't know, you should tell me in 20 years. Like, we'll find out. You don't want to make any prediction. <laughs> I don't know anything about diplomacy. I mean, I, I, I think it'll like... I see you've been a great dip, dip, a diplomat of AI. I, I, th I think you've been... Thank you. Um, I'll take that. Uh, I have a Good. gentleman with a microphone already, so please go ahead with your question, sir. Good morning. My name is Faraz, and I'm part of the Curiosity Operations team. Uh, I'm, I've been a very eager ad adopter of uh, ChatGPT4 from Instapos to making my kids' homeworks. So thanks for the tool. Uh, fear of change. You know, uh, when we talk about GPT, a lot of people have a fear of change. And then we read about the big tech companies talking of job losses. Uh, regulators, uh, you know, talk about it negatively at times. Do you believe that fear of change is going to be the biggest roadblock growth of AI globally? Anybody who doesn't have some fear of the magnitude of the change we're facing here, I think is not thinking hard enough about it. So I have some too. I, I mean, I think we're going to manage through it. I think we always do. We have to, and, and the world can be so much better on the other side here. But this is going to be you know, dramatic change. We are in this next decade, we're going to live through history in a way that we haven't done as a world, you know, you know, with the more recent smaller technological revolutions. There's no one still alive who remembers what it was like to live through the Industrial Revolution. Um, so 
the socioeconomic contract is going to change a lot. I will say I am very heartwarmed on the upside about people's, how people are embracing that. There is fear for sure, but it's thoughtful and uh, nuanced. And people are like, well, this is going to happen. Let's figure out how to make it good. Uh, and I think this is part of why this strategy of doing iterative responsible deployments so that people have time to adapt, give input, have agency, have a global discussion about what we want. Uh, that's the best way to mitigate it. Lady. Hi, my name is Fatma Al-Khattab. You mentioned that with AI, it can also create uh, diseases. So the assumption is uh, you, you let AI out uh, on the premise that everyone is good. How are you going to be accountable when people use it for bad? So I'll give the answer to what we do and then why I think there's a challenge for the world. Um, we don't open source our most powerful models. We put them behind an API so that we can do things like not allow that. We train our models to refuse categories of, of behavior. Um, we can monitor for misuse. We can build all sorts of safeguards in to, to minimize the risks of things like that. And frankly, it does mean trading off some of the upsides too. We catch legitimate use cases that we can't differentiate well enough. Um, but that's obviously the right trade-off. I think the scrutiny on any effort like us and, and the global regulation should be great. You know, we're going around saying we need, we need a paradigm here. But we won't be the only model creators, and, and there will be open source models that people can download off the internet that can still, you know, they won't be nearly as powerful as what efforts like ours can make, but over time they will get powerful enough to have a big impact. And I don't know what the answer to that is. I don't think we've ever quite faced a technology with this shape. And... I've heard a lot of ideas about how we should handle it. Um, a lot of them make me uncomfortable. You know, like a lot of them go to the super surveillance state where you're watching what everyone's doing with their AI systems. I think we should try to avoid that. Um, but all the other approaches have some degree of weakness, and we're just going to have to make a global decision about what we're willing to trade off. It takes a lot of humility to answer this way. So one question here with the gentleman who have the microphone, and then I need a microphone in the first row, please. Thank you, Mohammed Saif, uh, Qatar National Library. Welcome to Qatar National It's beautiful. Library. Thank you. Uh, quick question. ChatGPT and other AI platforms, they are just as good as the input, the directions that you give them in terms of uh, the answers that you get. Talking about the next level of uh, uh, technology or uh, the next big step, which is emotional intelligence. Then when everybody's worried about the directions coming from the other side, should we be worried about it? You mean like the systems manipulate, like emotionally manipulating us? Yeah, I think we should be worried about that. I, you know, a thing that a lot of people are starting to talk about is many, many kids are going to grow up with more AI friends than human friends. And I find that super uncomfortable, uh, even if that's what most people want. And I think people do have a right to what they want. But like the power of these systems, I think, to learn how to influence a, a person or to learn how to like say what a person wants to hear. Or, again, we can really train them for anything. Uh, and I think the misuse potential there is great. And that'll be an area of very important safeguards, industry standards, regulation. Um, and I think we, I hope that the field approaches that with great caution. Um, 
you already see some of this where people are like forming deep personal relationships with AIs. Um, I think we need to pay a lot of attention to that. So. Hi, Sam. Uh, this is Mohammed. Uh, appreciate your time. Um, I want to ask you uh, a two-part question. Uh, one about so-called hallucinations or answers that seem right but are in fact factually incorrect. Um, can you unpack how, from a technical perspective, these things happen, and whether in the newer versions of ChatGPT uh, it will continue to exist? And if so, um, is this your worry about the bad outcomes that can happen based on these bad foundational? You, you mentioned an uh, analogy of calculators. Calculators are factually correct, um, and they're used and built upon. With this tool, um, there's the effect of having a false uh, uh, um, information built upon and then causing uh, damage, potentially. And the second part question is about the investments that OpenAI makes on applications of GPT on different fields. Um, you know, you have Harvey AI, which is a legal AI. Um, you mentioned that it's uh, an equalizing force, GPT. And my question is, do you invest in emerging markets that apply OpenAI, let's say in Arabic language or uh, in other languages that are uh, less, um, uh, I would say, uh, uh, you know, uh, developed than English. So on the hallucinations point, um, I think it's worth taking a minute to just explain how these models are trained right now um, and why we have the current problem. The, only, the, the, the thing that GPT-4 is trained to do is to look at a thousand words and predict the word that comes next, and then the next one, the next one, the next one. And that's its, that's its training objection, that objective. That's what it's gotten good at. There's not a lot of things in the training samples that say things like, uh, you know, here's this question and then I don't know. That's not usually what's on the internet. There's some answer. And so the model trying to like match its training distribution, if it doesn't know, is not trained very effectively to say, I don't know. It mostly will say, uh, you know, something that looks like it'd be a plausible answer on a web page. Um, we're working now to train it to say, I don't know. And even better than that, we're working to train it to go learn the answer. Um, you know, if you ask it something it doesn't know, it'd be great if the model would tell you someday, like, hey, I don't know that yet, but if you give me an hour, I will go read a bunch of new books, I'll email some experts, and I'll get back and tell you the answer. Um, I, we, we're making good progress week over week on reducing hallucinations. Um, I think in, you know, maybe a couple of years, it won't be something we even still remember. There's one trade-off, which is, one thing that people love from these models is cre their creative ability. You know, kids love using them to tell stories. And making up stories is a good kind of hallucination. And so you want the model to hallucinate sometimes, but not when you're asking it for a factual answer. And that may take us a little work to get the balance right. But I think we can train the model. We can teach the models anything. And one of the things we can teach them is to be factual and give answers that, that they can check and cite and that logically are consistent. So I think we'll be able to make a lot of progress there. Uh, the second point, yes, we would love to invest in uh, startups here. Uh, the guy that runs our fund is sitting there. You should talk to him if you're working on a startup on, it, on our platform. Uh, that'd be great. Perfect. So we have already a gentleman with the microphone. Please go ahead, sir. Um, thank you so much for being here. My name is Dr. Branch. I'm from the United States. Um, fundament fundamentally, 
Um, education has been defined as the transfer of knowledge from one generation to another generation as a human experience. Are we now at the time where the concept of education itself must change? I, it's very hard for me to imagine a, a future of education that is not fundamentally about the human experience. You know, when I think back to my own education, when I really made the big steps forward, it was when I had a great teacher that I could tell cared about me, that I wanted to impress, that, was, that really, like, took the time to, like, help me. And you can feel that as a kid. So very hard for me to imagine a world where we get away from that. But if this is a tool that can help busy, overworked teachers, and if this is a tool that can help people get a lot of one-on-one -on -one time when they want and have it be interactive and fun and exciting and you know, meet a kid right where they are all the time, along with teachers doing what only human teachers can do, I think that's a very powerful hybrid model. Are we going to get a scenario where better teacher would be better and average teacher would be better? Do, 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 you, do you see something like this? Or are we going to we're going to create the opposite where you discourage the good teachers to stay good teachers. I, I think, I think it'll like lift everything up. I think the best teachers will still be the best teachers, but the medium teachers will be much higher at a much higher rate. I have a question here. Hi, Sam. Uh, my name is Victor Pineda. I help negotiate the international convention on the rights of persons with disabilities a treaty that protects the rights of a billion people worldwide. Uh, also, I serve as a regulator, because a presidentially appointed regulator on the U.S. Federal Taxes Board. So in preparation for my meeting, for, for this talk, I asked ChatGTP what question I should ask you about your work on disability rights and accessibility. Conclusion. And so there were some questions about implicit bias, which you've answered. But there's one question that I think is also important for Qatar and the leadership that's very committed to advancing disability rights here. And the question is, are there any ongoing or planned research projects or collaborations within OpenAI specifically aimed at advancing disability rights and accessibility in artificial intelligence. Yes. Um, accessibility has been a major focus of ours. We have new modalities coming pretty soon. Uh, one early one is that we just launched a speech recognition system uh, in the iPhone app that has been mentioned a lot by people with disabilities. It's the only speech recognition that can understand them reliably. Um, we'll have a lot more to come with other modalities there. I think we'll be able to push accessibility particularly for people with disabilities, pretty far. Um, and we've engaged with a number of organizations on new, new directions for research for us to do, too. Do you have a governance model that incorporates representation of people with disabilities within the sort of board? Not on our board, but we are trying to think now about what a governance model for what we're trying to do looks like. Like, we're not... You know, we, we have this nonprofit that's in control of us that has a small number of board members. But if, if we do have the global impact we hope to have, like, we need a much larger governance body of some sort. Like, I don't know what a Senate for AGI looks like globally, but, or what a, you know, UN for OpenAI looks like, but we're, we're trying to figure that out right now. 
Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, a question at this side. Hi. Uh, my name is Afra Wadani from Operational Excellence and um, NQF. So um, uh, this is funny because I'm going to use your tools against you. <laughs> so what did I do? I texted ChatGPT and I said, Sam Altman is sitting in front of me. And this is your opportunity to ask him a question. What do you want to ask him? So uh, it gave me an answer. And then I said, what is your most important question? Again, the same answer. Finally, is this your most critical questions? So the answer is, what is your, that's chat GPT question. What is your perspective on the ethical responsibilities of tech leaders in shaping the future? And how do you envision leveraging technology to address global challenges while ensuring a positive social impact? That was ChatGPT. Pretty good question. My question. <laughs> yeah, it's good. <laughs> and now this is my question: As uh, I, uh, AI and automation continue to raise, uh, there is some concern about the job, uh, a little bit um, displacement. So, how do you think we can navigate these challenges and create a future that benefits everyone? But we want also the ethical responsibility question. Thank okay. you. I'll start with yours first in terms of putting humans first. Um, there is going to be economic impact, for sure, with this technology. That's totally unavoidable, really unhelpful to pretend otherwise. The current systems are very good at doing tasks, but not jobs. And so what you see happening is people are way more productive at what they do, um, but you still really need the human doing that job, for the most part. There are a few exceptions. Over time, um, I think AI will automate more and more of jobs, I'm pretty sure that in most categories, humans will just operate at a higher and higher level. You'll, you know, you give people better tools and the expectations and also the potential go up. And we've seen this with previous technology, you know, that when the computers came out, people are like, a lot of these categories of jobs are going away. Some of them did, but on, on, for the most part, people were able to just do more and better and new. Um, and I think that's what's going to happen with AI. Like, the, the potential of all of us and the expectations of all of us go up a lot. And there will be totally new jobs that are created. So some jobs will totally go away, but there will be new jobs. And it, in the same way that if you sat 100 years ago, it would have been hard to imagine the job of like AI programmer. I think it's hard for us to imagine the jobs 100 years from now, but I don't think we're going to like run out of human creativity or desire or, you know, the deep need for fulfillment from work. So... They'll just be new and different. Um, and a lot of them will not be new and different. They'll just be, we'll do more. Um, on the ethical question, we can build, I think, almost anything at this point. And the, the accountability for us should be on what we're building, how we're listening to what people want, and how we're responsibly deploying it. And I think a big part of that is pushing for global regulation, even when it's unpopular, when we see something coming five or 10 years down the path that's just going to be super different. Um, I think there's also questions about what we let our current systems do and not do. Um, and ideally, we're not even the ones making those decisions, right? Like ideally, we just come up with a some sort of global democratic, democratic process people believe in and, and let the, you know, give tools to the world and the institutions of the world to make those decisions. Excellent. I have a gentleman already with a microphone, I think, here. Uh, please go ahead, sir. 
so thanks everyone for the organization. My name is Rami, and I'm a senior data scientist at financial regulator here in Doha, so the Qatar Financial Center Regulatory Authority. So thanks, Sam, for coming here. We are proud to receive you here in Doha. So basically, I have three concerns, and I would like to see your opinion and whether they are a priority or not. So the first one, uh, can we see uh, GPT-4 as a self-hosted service in Azure? So we are using currently the OpenAI API. And secondly, can we predict uh, sometime which data had been used in training sets of model? And thirdly, thank you very much. So uh, basically the footprint and the energy consumption. So the GPT-4 is expected to be trained on like 30,000 American household electric, electricity consumption. So can you uh, give some opinions how to improve uh, and reduce this energy footprint? And thanks you very much. On the first one, yes, you can use it on Azure. Um, they offer it now. Uh, I would love to hear at some point why you'd rather use it on Azure than OpenAI, but that would just be like interesting customer feedback for us. But yeah, you can do it. Uh, on the second one, in terms of training data, we don't publish the full training data set, but we do publish evals that usually like make people comfortable with whatever they need. Um, if those aren't satisfying for you, let us know and we can uh, create additional stuff. And then on the third one, uh, you know, we use, we train on Azure, uh, which has a net zero commitment for all of our training and will be uh, totally on renewables pretty soon. All right. Yes. Hi, uh, Afrah from Qatar Foundation. So what, what is the best and the worst use case for ChatGPT and how do you personally use ChatGPT? I could like give a bunch of examples of good use cases, but I think the, the thing that is like the meta answer to that is that it's one tool that is so useful for so many things. And that's what's letting it become part of people's workflow. So it, it becomes like this super assistant that you can ask to explain a complex physics uh, topic to you or to like, you know, translate something in another language or to summarize a long document or to write code for you. And then also you can chain, the, chain these tasks together. So there are a lot of systems that are better at any one thing than ChatGPT. But I think the power of ChatGPT is being good enough generally to be this like, yeah, high-powered assistant across many new things. Um, what I use it personally for, uh, I mean, so much stuff. Last night, I was, uh, I was like, I was walking down a street in Jordan, and I heard this song that, like, reminded me of a song from my childhood, and I couldn't remember any of the lyrics. And I typed into ChatGPT, like, the three most random things I could remember about it, and it gave me the song name. It was this like very magical moment that I, there was no other way I was ever going to find that song, and it like really brought back like a deep memory for me. So the crowd feel the hours passing by, and I have a lot of hands. I have already a gentleman with the microphone. Then we're gonna go to the second microphone there, and I do want to give our last uh, few questions to our students. So we have one, two at the top, and a couple of them from the students. Please go ahead, sir. Hi, Sam. Uh, my name is Tristan. Thanks a lot for being here. Uh, amazing product you've built. I had a question around how you or OpenAI think about working with the U.S. military. You've built an incredibly powerful product. It seems likely that the U.S. military will be interested in working with you. 
So what sort of moral framework do you or OpenAI apply in thinking, do we want to work with the US military? And I would also ask you to keep in mind in your answer that presumably the Chinese will not hold back. And so how does that impact how you think about whether you're willing to work with the US military or not? Yeah, I don't think the naive answer that a lot of American tech companies say we would never work with US military makes any sense because of what you just pointed out. Um, we haven't had to think through this in detail yet. And the current systems are not, I'd say, of great interest. But I expect that we will, at some point, build systems that are important to the balance of military power in the world. And we like the US and its allies. Um, in terms of exactly what we would do, there's plenty of things we would not do. But in terms of exactly what we would do, we, we haven't like made that list yet. But it will not be a no, we never will help. So one question from the very top. Uh, please. Uh, um, <clears throat> hello, my name is Mohammed Sir Al-Khatim. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm a student at Digital Humanities at HPKU, and I currently work at QF. My question for you is about, uh, you touched on the ethical responsibility, but we're seeing a lot of AI models um, that are using GPT-4 in um, video game development, making NPCs coming more alive, dating simulators where, like you said, people are forming relationships with AI. And just from a digital humanities point of view, how much are we augmenting or replacing what makes us human in a very fundamental level when we increase our interactions with GPT and relying on it or AI models? And I guess my question to you is, how important do you think are um, creating ethical parameters or having research teams work with you and other AI developers in order to ensure that there are ethical frameworks that maintain that core humanistic interaction as the technology improves? Yeah, I think it's super important. And, and, and you touched on this, but I think it's very, very important that OpenAI is not making these decisions ourselves. Uh, in fact, we just launched a grant program for people who want to work on new ways to set these frameworks to discover what this is. Um, it's been quite cool to see some of the early proposals for that and meet some of the people who are thinking about it. I think that the challenges here are big, but also we do have a new, a new tool. Like you can imagine really engaging with people to understand their preferences, their value system, and also providing like counterpoints that I think can help us make moral progress. So you can imagine, someone could say, yeah, all right, on this ethical question, A or B, I think A. The system could say, that's totally up to you. If you want to keep that with A, that's fine. Here's, pers here's another perspective from people that are very different from you. You might not get to meet much. Does that change your mind? If so, great. If not, that's totally great too. And I think collecting this on a global scale and figuring out how to learn the preferences of humanity in a way that allows for progress um, is, is quite exciting. You know, there's like we don't allow dating apps right now. I'm not sure if that's something the technology should be used for, but I'd love to get like real input from people on that. And, and then different people can also make different decisions on some things. Some things we do have to come to global agreement on. So we have our uh, last question, or or before the last question from our students, please. Uh, hello, my name is Ahmed Ismail, and I want to ask you uh, about advice for a future AI engineer. First of all, that's definitely the right thing to go do, so I think that's awesome. Um, learn to, learn to like work on large-scale distributed systems. 
the I think the a big part of the most exciting future of AI will be doing things at very large scale, and that is a skill you can learn early, uh, and you'll be happy to have it. I'm pretty sure down the road. Definitely learning research tastes, like figuring out people who can mentor you on this is like a good research direction to go after or not before you or as you develop your own, is super helpful. I think just get familiar building stuff. Like the best thing to do to get good at this is to start building like build like a small language model and then a medium sized one and then just like you will learn so much through the course of doing that. This is uh, the end of our session. Sam, you've been very generous. I wish Thank we had more time. This was really fun. Thank you all. Thank you for coming to Qatar. Your Highness, Your Excellency, thank you very much. Thank you for coming to Qatar and Qatar Foundation. It's been a pleasure. And that's a wrap. We hope you enjoyed this episode and gained valuable insights from this Education City Speaker Series special conversation, which features Elias Falfoul moderating a conversation with Sam Altman, CEO of OpenAI. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps out a lot. And be sure to check out Education City Speakers Series' other conversations. There is a plethora of great content to digest. All the relevant links can be found in the description. And if you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us anytime on our social media platforms through the links in the description. Finally, don't forget to subscribe to Wise On Air wherever you get your podcasts to be notified of our upcoming episodes. We'll be back soon with a new episode featuring the topic of learning ecosystems. This is one we've wanted to do for a while now, and we're glad to finally be able to reach that topic soon. Until then, keep on learning, and thank you for listening to Wise On Air. Thank you.